Hello, everyone, and welcome back to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of 70s music, politics, and culture. This is Amy, your host for this One Woman, One Mic show. Today, I'm going to take a look at the birth of hip-hop, which was born in the 70s and has gone on to become a dominant force in American pop music. First, thank you for listening. If you're new, thank you for hitting play, which is the most important thing you can do. Uh, You can spread the word about the podcast to others who might like it. And if you are so inclined, you can help pay for equipment, fees, books, and all of the other things that go into making an independent podcast like this by going to ftr70.com and clicking on any Patreon link. You can be a patron for as little as $1 a month. On the morning of March 21st, 1980, residents of Des Moines, Iowa, and the surrounding vicinity woke up to this above-the-fold headline in the Des Moines Register Peach, the paper's sports section that was printed on peach-colored paper. Kenny's delightful music irritates a few ears. The Kenny in question is Kenny Arnold, the star guard for the only Iowa Hawkeyes team to make it to the Final Four in the past 60 years. A reporter asked some of Kenny's teammates what the worst thing about him was, keeping in mind that he was and is loved by his teammates. So it's not like the reporter was trying to dig up dirt. It was more one of those public interest fluff piece things like the puppy stories that come on at the end of the news. Two of his teammates said it was Kenny's choice of music. Steve Waite said that Arnold has the biggest stereo radio, that's what it was called, on the team, and plays the same piece of music over and over, and it takes 15 minutes to get through it one time. What was this piece of music that so irritated his teammates? That was Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Arnold said that he had two of the four versions, and he confirmed that he was known to play the song on repeat for two hours in a row. The 80s had just begun, and Kenny Arnold was playing a song that was the first mainstream hip-hop hit and it was just the beginning for hip-hop. How did we get there? Well, history gives us part of the answer to that question. Many people know that hip-hop was born in the Bronx in the 70s, but we can go back even further in history to better understand why. After World War II ended in 1946, white people left American cities in droves. Not wanting to live in neighborhoods that were becoming more and more racially diverse, White families packed their station wagons and headed for the suburbs. The growth of suburbia in the 50s was fueled by the GI Bill, which guaranteed home loans, and assembly line style of houses where your house looked a lot like your neighbor's house, but it was affordable. It may have been a small patch of grass, but it was your patch of grass. Minorities were largely kept out of the suburbs by discriminatory practices and quite simply neighborhood policies to not allow minorities in. Levittown, largely considered to be the first suburb, was built on a former potato field on Long Island, New York. It had a restrictive covenant, keeping out not only black people, but Jewish people. And this was all backed by the Federal Housing Authority. The FHA said we want to avoid, and I quote, inharmonious racial or nationality groups in housing. So... 
the white folks took their tax dollars to suburbia and left the cities to the black and Latino people, and in some communities, the Asian people. What does any of this have to do with hip-hop? The Bronx, as most people know, is the poorest of the New York City boroughs. As I record this, over 40% of the children living in the Bronx live in poverty, which is twice the state average. In the 70s, the Bronx was the most hellacious of the boroughs. It was just not a safe place to be. It was not always like that. In the early 1900s, the Bronx was full of European immigrants, especially Jews, and there was a lot of growth in the Bronx at that time. Apartments and office buildings, Yankee Stadium in 1923... The prosperous times came to an end, starting with the Great Depression in the 1930s and then World War II in the first half of the 1940s. The migration pattern known as white flight was evident in the long-term white residents of the Bronx heading to the north side of the Bronx or out of the Bronx completely to the suburbs. The condition of the buildings that were left behind grew worse over time. The concept concept of rent control had been introduced to keep rents from being jacked up because apartments were so scarce, but this made it hard for landlords who wanted to improve their property to actually do it. So buildings became very run down. There was a lack of basic services like sanitation, police, fire, and the Bronx became kind of a hellscape, actually. Building owners started burning their buildings down in the 70s, so that they could get the insurance money. The Bronx was literally on fire. So let's roll it back to the music of the year 1970. Nine years before Rapper's Delight, Gil Scott Heron released the precursor to rap, the album Small Talk at 125th and Lenox. Gil was born in Chicago, but he was sent to live in the Bronx with his grandmother when he was about 12, which was around 1961. He was a poet, and his first book of poetry was published in 1970 and was called Small Talk at 125th and Lenox. He then recorded an album of the same name. In his memoir, The Last Holiday, he said that the summer of 1970 was drawing to a close. I went to the studio with a small group of folks on folding chairs and did poems from Small Talk and a few songs I had done on pianos in coffee houses. This was our introduction to The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which is Gill reciting. You could even make a case for rapping the words while accompanied by a bongo. It was fortuitous that this coincided with the time that FM radio was beginning to emerge in some of the bigger cities. Some cuts from small talk got played on FM radio, which was purely underground at that time, and helped sell some records. This allowed Gill and Brian Jackson, who collaborated with him on many projects, to make a record with much more emphasis on music, and it is on that record, Pieces of Man, that we get the version of The Revolution Will Not Be Televised that most people are familiar with. It is a literal time capsule of early 70s America, not just with the references to the celebrities of the era like Glenn Campbell, Natalie Wood, Tom Jones but with commentary on white America as well as mass consumerism. Some of the lyrics go like this. The revolution will not be back after a message. The revolution will not go better with Coke. The revolution will not fight the germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will not put you in the driver's seat. Green 
Akers, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Jerkson will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry Hall, woman liberationist, and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Key, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. That is the 1971 version of The Revolution Will Not Be Televised from Pieces of Man. The original from Small Talk at 125th and Lenox was added to the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress in 2005 because of its historical and cultural significance. Malik Al-Nasir, who is a performance poet in the same style as Gil Scott Heron and someone who was mentored by him, said that without Small Talk... Hip hop would hip hop, pardon me, would have just been rapper's delight. The political turn that hip hop takes in the mid to late '80s is indeed a fair distance from rapper's delight, but not so far from the revolution will not be televised. Gil Scott Heron represents what hip hop would become. Rapper's delight, Kenny Arnold's favorite song, represents in part where hip hop came from. That, my friends has a lot to do with funk and disco. First, let me remind you that the very first episode of this podcast makes the case that disco does not suck. So if you have not checked it out, please go do so as soon as you have finished listening to this episode. However, it is also true that the relationship between disco and hip-hop is complicated. On one hand, you have the disco haters who did not like the polished orchestral sound that dominated the radio in the late 70s. On the other hand, hip-hop did borrow the two-turntable technique, and it used the break beats that house DJs perfected in discos. That break is 10 to 15 seconds of maybe bass, guitar, and drum, and it was the backbone of 70s funk. The break in this 1969 classic from James Brown is woven into the DNA of hip-hop. Stop the beat. Clyde.
That's the godfather of soul, James Brown, with the often sampled Give It Up or Turn It A Loose, released in January 1969. It made it to number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the R&B chart. Ten years later, Brown released the original Disco Man, which appears to be JB giving himself credit for inventing disco. Well, the Dean of Rock Critics, Robert Criscow, wrote this of James Brown's career between 1969 and 1971. Having enjoyed his interracial fame, he quickly faded from the consciousness of most white people. But between 1969 and 1971, while whites danced, if at all, to Credence and the Stones and maybe Memphis Soul, Motown was out then, Brown scored 17 17 in three years, top 10 R&B hits that changed black dancing and paved the way to disco. Chris Gow also rated the original Disco Man an A-, by the way, and he is kind of a tough critic. Not long after Brown released Give It Up or Turn It A Loose, Clive Campbell, a native of Jamaica, moved to New York. He is considered by many people to be the father of hip-hop. He got his start DJing his sister's birthday party, and he made a name for himself as a DJ at house parties and block parties before he ever became a house DJ at a club. That's the origin of his nickname, DJ Cool Herc. He took that two-turntable technique to extend the break, like the ones we just heard, and give it up or turn it a loose, which he called the merry-go-round. This let the so-called B-boys do their thing and show off their best moves. Those B-boys became known as breakdancers in the 1980s. 70s funk is the seasoning to the hip-hop of the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Cool Herc and another of our hip-hop pioneers, Grandmaster Flash, sifted through used funk and soul records and record shops and thrift stores and crafted the music they found into a whole new genre. Grandmaster Flash said that he devoted three years of his life as a teenager just immersing himself in the music and trying to figure out what to do with these breaks. He was such a student of the art that he noticed that if you look closely enough, you can actually see the breaks in the vinyl, and he began to mark these breaks with a grease pencil or a crayon. Cool Herc did an interview with Terry Gross on NPR's Fresh Air in 2005. In this interview, he discussed the breaks. He said, The breaks came out of an experiment. I'm watching the people dancing. A lot of people used to wait for some particular part of the record. I'm studying the floor. I was noticing people used to wait for the particular parts of the record to dance to, just to do their special little moves. So I said, listen, I'm going to do a thing. I'm going to call it the merry-go-round. At the time, I had a record called Apache, and it was off an album called The Incredible Bongo Rock. And when I did that, that experiment went out the window. Everybody would come and really wait for that particular part of my format for me to get into it. And that's when everybody started searching for the perfect beat, trying to beat that record. They still can't beat that record until this day. Everybody is still using Bongo Rock's Apache. Now, what he is referring to is Mike Viner's incredible Bongo band and their 1973 cover of a 1960 instrumental written by British composer Jerry Lorden. The same year of Cool Herc's interview with Terry Gross, music writer Michelangelo Matos made the case that Apache is the national anthem of hip-hop. He wrote... 
Viner and his crew had concocted the most crazed piece of orchestral funk ever recorded. And what it made it all the more ridiculous was that the song never lost its shape, never stopped being Apache. It was, as Jerry Lorden had wished, noble and dramatic, and maybe a bit savage, though probably not all that courageous, apart from the biggest liberty it took, which was to extend the song via a minute-long percussion break. The trap drummer, probably Gordon, and the congaist, probably Viner, dueling to a draw, the congas winnowing into the beat, and the drummer never losing his pace. goodness this is not a video podcast because how do you listen to that and not want to move i don't know i think it defies the laws of physics in his paper matos makes the point that apache will be remade over and over again in hip-hop and rap songs especially in the early days of hip-hop when sampling was much more common and a little less legally dicey in the late 70s and into the 80s many 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 hip-hop artists sampled disco and funk records and integrated them into their own records if you want to go down an interesting rabbit hole check out the website whosampled.com by far the most comprehensive resource i've ever seen about the most sampled songs according to whosampled.com James Brown songs have been sampled 8,261 times, by far the most. The next closest competition is the Winstons, largely because of their 1969 song, Amen Brother. There's some likely suspects in the top 10, uh, Michael Jackson, Run DMC, not too surprising. The third most sampled artist may not be as familiar to you, but you will definitely recognize her song. Think About It by Lynn Collins has been sampled over 3,000 times. She recorded the song for James Brown's label, People Records, and he wrote it. So that should tell you all you need to know about the funk in this song. The song did make it to number nine on the Billboard R&B chart in 1972. But listen closely and you will hear It Takes Two by Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock from 1988. And if you listen really close, you might be able to pick up that part that Boys to Men sampled from Motown Philly.
sampled over 3,000 times, it is not hard to understand why. As I said, that the relationship between 70s hip-hop and disco was complicated. On one hand, hip-hop was a rejection of disco. Disco did very little to celebrate the black artist, even if it was music made uh, by black people. Disco was not about the artist. It, it didn't really matter who the artist was, unless maybe you were the Bee Gees or KC and the Sunshine Band or Donna Summer. Disco was about production. It was not at all reflective of what was happening in the Bronx, which endured white flight and a lack of interest from anyone who could have funneled some money into that neighborhood to try to make life better. Disco was glitz and glamour, and there was not much for a young black kid in the Bronx to relate to. So, young artists created their own music, and there was an audience for that, something that felt more real. There is some irony, then, that one of the last disco hits, Good Times by Chic, leads to the first mainstream hip-hop record, Rapper's Delight. Niall Rogers said in an interview with the Red Bull Music Academy in 2011 that he and Bernard Edwards realized that with Good Times they had, quote, the perfect hip-hop record because the breakdown took so long to develop that they could have rhymes that could go on forever. He said for Chic, the song was just the excuse to go to the chorus and the chorus was just the excuse to go to the breakdown. Good Times was the second number one song for Chic following Les Freak in December 1978. The sound of the band had become much more complex and intricate by then. This was their third album, titled Risqué. Barry Crocker, writing for The New York Rocker, no, I did not make that up, in 1980 said this about the song Good Times. Behind the lush string orchestrations and colorful poly melodies lies a raunchy pulse, a pulse that comes from the street, a gut-level instinct not necessarily sexual but raw and stripped of any phony trappings. That's why Good Times had such broad appeal. The lyrics were easy and catchy and ambiguous, but it was the music, that bass line like a jungle drum, that hand clap like a heartbeat lifeline, allowing everyone to pour out their troubles onto the dance floor.
released in June 1979 and number one on the Billboard Hot 100 by August 18th. Good Times also made it to number three on the disco chart. It is number 220 on Rolling Stone's list of top 500 songs of all time, which no doubt has as much to do with the number of times that the song has been sampled as it does for Sheik's own recording of the song. Its DNA is woven into the DNA of hip hop. It also sounds very similar to Another One Bites the Dust by Queen, which was released a year later. Even though Good Times came first, many people accused Sheik of copying Queen as if it was too hard to acknowledge that a rock band could be influenced by a funk or disco or R&B band. Good Times was the last hit record that Sheik ever had, and so I guess it's appropriate that it sparks one of the things that will signal an end to disco's dominance on the pop charts, which is, of course, hip-hop. The first time Nile Rodgers heard Rapper's Delight, he was in a club. Obviously, he recognized the beginning of his own song right away, and he was totally fine with Good Times being sampled like that. He said that musicians have always done this. It was usually maybe fans or definitely record labels who would get upset. Now, the DJ at this club said he had just bought an album put out by Sugar Hill Records that day. He showed it to Nile, who looked at it and did not see his name or Bernard's name on it. Now, that he did not like. Sugar Hill Records is the label started by Sylvia Robinson. You might know her from Mickey and Sylvia from the late 50s, or if you remember that scene in Dirty Dancing when Baby and, and Johnny were dancing to Love is Strange, she was that Sylvia. Niall and Bernard were understandably not happy that their music was basically stolen with no financial compensation to them, but their record label, Atlantic, would not sue. So... Nile and Bernard sued Sugar Hill on their own. It is not insignificant that Morris Levy, a record executive with known mafia connections, was a financial investor in Sugar Hill. So it took some guts to file that lawsuit, but they did. And they got a nice out-of-court settlement, and the copyright laws have been more strictly enforced since then. They established the precedent of giving writing credit where credit is due, and they do now have writing credit on Rapper's Delight, Kenny Arnold's favorite song in 1980. Rapper's Delight was at its heart rapping over the good times baseline. While the quick and clever wordplay that was rap may not have been new to those who heard it at house parties or in the parks in the Bronx, there had been nothing like this in mainstream music before. Uh, compared to what follows in hip-hop, I, I'll say the rapping in Rapper's Delight seems very tame now. The Sugar Hill Gang was really just three kids from New Jersey who went by the names Wonder Mike, Master G, and Big Hank. That is Michael Wright, Guy O'Brien, and Henry Jackson. These guys encountered a whole lot of legal troubles over their own names and who really had the right to be uh, the Sugar Hill Gang. But that's because they were naive, I think, to the ways of the music industry. They didn't know, for example, that the record label and the management for the band should not be the same. Sylvia Robinson knew she wanted to record a rap record, but she was having a really hard time finding a rap artist who would agree to be recorded. Rap was viewed as a live performance art, 
and it was hard for many of the artists to see how it could translate to vinyl. And if it did, was there actually an audience for it? Legend has that Sylvia discovered Big Hank on a tip from her son at Crispy Crust Pizza in New York. The other two guys were recruited in similar fashion, just driving around asking if rappers would want to record uh, rap over music, and that music being good times. Having never worked together before, they simply just jumped in when Sylvia pointed at them when they were in this recording studio, and 14 minutes after their first take in the recording studio, Rapper's Delight was born. To get radio stations to play that song, Sylvia Robinson mailed the records to largely black radio stations and kept calling until they would play it. Once the record got airplay, listeners wanted to know where they could get a copy, and well, hip-hop, the industry, was born. It was not the first rap single, but it was the first one to be a commercial success. In his essay about the song's inclusion into the National Registry by the Library of Congress, music writer Eric Reese wrote this about the song's influence. Rapper's Delight came as the tear in the veil and the standard upon which struggling hip-hop rode into success in an era and time when companies were too scared to finance record labels or artists or even dream to push them onward. It broke the bank and became an eye-opener to various rappers who could tap into its success and build their own style and not limit themselves to a theme in rap music. Indeed, Sugar Hill then went on to sign Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, who broke through in 1982 with the message. Spoonie G had hit records, Curtis Blow had hit records, and on a personal note, in his 1984 song, Basketball, that was my introduction to rap, because that song was a favorite among a lot of the jocks in my very white high school in small town Nebraska. What was happening in hip-hop as the 70s became the 80s was, in many ways, the same thing that Gil Scott Heron was doing with The Revolution Will Not Be Televised back in 1970, although it will take a few years before the content of hip-hop becomes that political. Which brings me back to my original point. There was so much happening in the creation of hip-hop in the 70s that was not being recorded for posterity. Who knew? Nobody at these house parties thought, hey, let me grab a pen and paper and make some notes because this is history in the making. Music was being made like it is always being made as a reflection of what its creators were seeing and thinking and feeling. The America that this country made after World War II could not be made without doing some damage to the cities 
And there were some young people in the 70s who turned that damage into art. That is one of the things that is so wonderful and inspirational about art, and hip-hop is no different in that regard. That is all for this episode of For the Record the 70s. If you liked what you heard, please be so kind as to tell your friends, tell your mom, tell somebody who might like it too. You can leave me a message on the Spotify app or you can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. All the sources are on ftr70.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, everybody.